Hey everyone, you're listening to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. Sorry I've been absent for a few weeks. I got a bit of the old plague doom syndrome, uh, which has killed my motivation to do extra work beyond my job lately. So uh, my last few episodes fell through. One of them because of technical issues, uh, one because the person kind of stopped responding to me. So I have nothing else in the can or in planning. So I'm hoping to get back on track soon, but until then, I have this interview with Zaylin, who is cool and nice and has interesting insights from his job that I think we can all enjoy. Hope you like it. So, thanks for coming on, Zaylin. Um, do you want to just uh, briefly explain what your expertise is, what you do, etc.? Uh, so, what I do is I do corporate finance for a pharma slash medical device company. Um, we, on the pharma side, we make uh, generic infusion systems products such as IV bags and the tubing for them. So, administer for administering medication, um, controlling blood infusions, et cetera. There's a lot of specialty products associated with that. And then on the medical device side, we do infusion pumps that are like electronic computerized administration medication. So extended out over, over a period of times or sensitive drugs such as morphine or any other sort of painkiller that needs to be have controls on it. So, And we do a software portion of that where it basically helps nurses who are very busy stay away from mistakes. And if they input the wrong administration of a drug, it'll let them know and they have to triple check it. And it also transmits all this data to a cloud so hospitals can see what they're using, how much they're using, and it helps them kind of forecast how much they might need and order next time around. So finance and engineering, um, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, I've never met anyone who... I actually, I don't think I've met anyone in the medical industry. Someone, I, I know a couple of people in the insurance industry, but mm-hmm. I guess that's more of a admin side than what you're doing. Yeah, it, it definitely the insurance side is definitely a lot more expansive than a lot of the manufacturing side, just for the level of bureaucracy and administration involved with that. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, you said you've. You've worked on uh, in other continents. Uh, what kind of stuff do you do internationally? Is it just so the same one of my kind of prior? Stuff? Oh yeah, you're fine. Uh, one of my prior roles was uh, so I didn't actually work in other continents. I did work up in uh, Montreal, Canada, for a while at our uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand regional hub, just because it's part of the Commonwealth and they kind of grouped it like that. But uh, my job basically was done remotely. And in the morning, I would wake up, talk to Europe. Uh, during the day was Latin America and Canada. And then in the evening was Asia and Australia. So very long days, but I would kind of have just random sporadic breaks in between. And a lot of that was just kind of coordinating a lot of financial forecasting and working with them to kind of see how they're ending up, some of the challenges they're experiencing with their various healthcare systems and um, helping them with a lot of the financial systems to make sure that uh, at the top of the house, we're all rolling up and we can kind of report easily. Um, For a little while, uh, they moved our regional headquarters of Asia to Taiwan and they 
neglected to hire a replacement in time. So I was the stand-in finance manager for Asia. Do you know why they moved it? Um, I think taxation reasons. Uh, we also, it was based in Shanghai and we didn't really have a whole lot of sales in China, but we did in Taiwan. So I, th- I think a lot of it was just kind of where the sales force was based. I didn't really get a straight answer on it. Um, but I did that, which was basically managing an accounting team in the Philippines who I love them all very dearly, but uh, a lot of it was about 10 p.m. calls arguing with them constantly about things. And I loved every minute of that. But, uh, and then uh, just working with the various countries and just understanding how the various healthcare systems are, because a lot of the revenue a lot of times is recognized differently in different timing as well, so you have to be aware of that. Um, but then, yeah, and then I trained my replacement based in Taiwan and kind of just helped them through. And, but I've since moved on, so our four manufacturing plants roll up into me. So I'm kind of the messenger between the people that work at the plants up to our CFO right now and um, kind of work a lot with just making sure that they're shielded. And if there's anything, I understand, having worked at a plant, I understand kind of how what goes into being able to obtain certain information and I'm part of who needs to push back and say, this is an unreasonable request or you need to give them a lot of time. And I just kind of manage expectations there. So I don't want to call it babysitting, but it's <laughs> a little bit of babysitting. Uh, so does your, does your company actually like own the manufacturing arms or is it like contracted out to other people? Yes, we own it. And we actually contract manufacture for a couple of different companies. Okay. Um, and, uh, I guess, um, like are the healthcare systems that you're dealing with, uh, is it all, are you all providing for one? I, I'm not clear on that. Are you all providing for one healthcare system or is it for like multiple countries? Uh, it's all global. It's, okay. um, all over the world. We're in. We're on every continent. We have offices in basically every continent. Um, okay. And so it's not just like the supply chain is in other countries. It's you're actually doing business with them as well. Yeah. So okay. we deal a lot, uh, a lot of different countries, and it depends on the country. Uh, have distributors that we deal with, and I can go into kind of how that distribution structure works globally a little later. Do you okay. Want- um, does that include like? you know, public healthcare systems like, like the NHS, or is it just the like private? Okay. It does. Um, Like Um, for example, I mean, despite, you know, them being who they are, uh, one of our biggest customers in our Europe, Middle East region is the government of Saudi Arabia. Right. Because because it's all government owned hospitals. So it's things like that. It, It really does depend on the country though. Yeah. So uh, I guess one thing that maybe a lot of people don't realize is even even if you have like a public healthcare system, there's still huge parts of it that are sort of privatized and are contracted out to, you know, to businesses. They have to mm-hmm. provide supplies or run hospitals or things like that. Um, so that's that's interesting. Um all right. And kind of um, the reason and kind of the reason for that as well, if you think about it, is that a hospital deals so extensively with everything that they're gonna need from drugs to supplies to kind of what we're seeing right now with the pandemic, managing all these different things and really where the supply chain companies come in is that they have relationships with all these different companies and they manage 
what they think and basically manage orders for them so that they have more materials on hand and can be responsible for helping people out and getting what they need. Because basically a hospital would have to have an absolutely gigantic product management support staff if they had to go reach out to each company and say, okay, I need this much because a lot of companies only make a few things. So you would have hundreds and hundreds of companies you'd have to deal with on a daily basis. So that's why the supply chain and the distributors exist the way they do. Or they would have to have their own supply chain. (laughs) Yes, which we we complain about bureaucratic costs now. It it would be unmanageable. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. Can you explain like some of the financial instruments that you deal with? you know, preferably in vulgar English so that uh, we can all understand. <laughs> so I think I put down, so I man- forecast and manage our uh, capital, which is essentially our large machines that manufacture or we're, or we have a giant warehouse we're building to, op- to save money in our supply chain. That's part of capital and just various things around. And really what that comes down to is managing cash flow. So cash out the door, which is, important especially in a pretty uncertain time right now because i mean if you don't have cash you have to take out debt and if you can't pay off your debt declare bankruptcy that's kind mm-hmm. of the simple way to do it. so i kind of track and report pretty much how much cash we're spending on a lot of these big projects and kind of i want to say maneuver but poke at it every single month or even once a week to say, all right, can we move some stuff around in order to hit this certain thing? Because in reality, what happens is that the top of the house comes in and say, we want it to be this number. And it's kind of my job to take the answer and come up with the question. (laughs) And Um, it's not, it's not necessarily how I would do it, but that's kind of how a lot of corporate finance runs. Gotcha. So like if you did have cash flow problems, who would you be borrowing from? Would it be like a commercial bank or? So you, you have your investment, like JP Morgan. Um, okay. Things like that, Goldman Sachs. And they, they kind of do a lot of things. They negotiate, like if you're trying to negotiate mergers as well, they provide oh, a lot wow. of the legalese and financing for that. And uh, they do a lot of different things there too. So it, we currently are kind of on hold as far as that goes. So we don't really deal with them a whole lot, but yeah, if you were hurting for cash and you have to be able to pay your suppliers and yeah, you would issue a debt note. And a lot of companies have what you call a rotating debt. I guess you call it a revolver, but they kind of have the terms reserved. So if you need it, you activate it and you essentially get that liquidity in there, which is basically just cash on hand. So depending on the company. And obviously it's good to have debt too. It's the same with your credit rating, right? It, if you can have a healthy amount of debt, people like that, whether that's right or wrong, it's kind of up to your opinion, but a lot of companies keep a rotating debt covenant just for that reason. That wasn't too much uh, jargon there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you have, uh, you have something down here about rebates and chargebacks. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? So this is, I don't deal with it much anymore, but this is more on the sales and commercial sides. So for example, what we're selling, we're selling a hospital product and we're negotiating with a customer. A customer is going to go through either a wholesaler or a distributor. So what's an example of a product that you would sell just so we have like a specific? An IV bag. 
So okay. big bag of saline, uh, this, say a hospital system comes in and says, all right, we want uh, 200,000 units over the year. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times they say, this is basically so they can guarantee that they have a supply. They'll sit there and say, I want this much. I promise to buy this much. But what we're going to do is we're going to invoice them at our rate that we would charge if they did not have a contract, which is tends to be a lot higher because you're not you're not guaranteeing us the sales and supply there. So we're not going to sit there and give you a discounted price. So this is if they were if they just came up to you and were like, I need 200 IV bags, you would that's this is the rate that you would charge them for that. We would charge them more because theoretically they're taking it away from other people that. Right. Okay may also want it. So there's incentive to sign longer term contracts for that reason. And that's the same with a lot of different industries as well. Like even for like car payments and things like that. And it's, or depend it's dependent, but yeah, if you're buying a car with cash, it's cheaper, but um, it's, it's kind of scratching both our backs. We guarantee we're going to get you this much or we pay pretty heavy penalties or, but they guarantee they're going to buy a certain amount or else they're going to have to pay us. So it's, okay. just, it's a mutual understanding. And so we send them the bill for that much of the top amount and then say, okay, you have a rebate. It's going to take you down. We essentially pay them back the money. They pay us the full amount. We pay them back the money pretty much. And I'm not sure what the turnaround time is now because it changed depending on how competent the accounting staff is. But about a month later, you pay them back and just say, okay, we're, you actually paid it at eight dollars a bag rather than ten that's a made-up price that's not actually how much it costs but um, they get that credit back and so there's just kind of a constant movement there so it's important to really kind of see the timing and not get hit with surprises in terms of what you're paying back especially with big hospital systems um as far as chargebacks go so basically these these distributors buy up a certain amount of supply and dependent if we don't necessarily have as many customers through them as they need, mm-hmm. they'll buy a bunch of supply, assuming they can probably sell it. So we sell it to them at $10 and then they go and say, all right, we needed to offload this inventory sold to them at six. So we're going to say, okay, we'll give you the money back. And that's negotiated in like the initial uh, contracts there, but it'd be like, okay, so you could only sell it for this much. We'll give you whatever money back to make you whole. There's a there's a lot of just like mutual, basically mutual rules back and forth to make sure everyone's conforming to the contract, and it's pretty standard across. Okay, so that's that's specified in the contract ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I was listening to True and On recently. I don't know if you listened to that one. It's uh like a leftist conspiracy podcast, basically. And uh, they, See, were, they I were talking. I follow their Twitter account, but don't actually listen. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Yeah, they had uh, they had someone from the health insurance industry on there who um, was talking about how insurance companies right now are highly leveraged. Um, mm-hmm. Which, um, to listeners that don't know, leveraged just basically means they have a lot of debt to try and improve their market position. So they they take on debt in order to, you know. Um, hoping that they are going to take over larger parts of the market and get more revenue later on um, so that they can pay off the debt and make it worth the, um, the attempt. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so can you can you explain why they are highly leveraged at all? So this is kind of an educated guess because I actually did talk to my friend who's in the insurance. He's an actuary in the insurance industry, and he mm-hmm. it's not super clear either. Um, but basically, from what I would say is that it's all about managing your risk and. A lot of times, too, and you see with like the presidential race right now, people will sit there and say, like when Bernie was had his surge, these healthcare stocks were tanking, mm-hmm. and so a lot of this is dictated based on laws. And I can tell a story about how that's impacted my role before a little later. But what you're trying to do with issuing debt is debt is a lot less risky than equity because a lot of times equity too, if you're not doing a good job, you can get overruled and forced out and anyone in a position of power doesn't want that. So if the issuing the debt is kind of just taking on, it's, it's making the assumption that you're going to be able to pay it back and you're taking on this debt in order to stay afloat necessar- in a more risky market. And then when you hit, I mean, they're earning a lot of profits as well. And so there's no issue for them to pay back this debt. So it's good for them to continue to take out this debt and basically keep it going so that when things kind of do tank, you kind of have it in your back pocket. It's risk management. Okay. And it's especially right now, there's just a lot of weird levers being pulled. And, but I, again, this, this is just kind of my overall look at it. I don't have an intimate knowledge of their uh, strategy regarding that. Um, so uh, would, would that sort of thing affect their ability to make payouts to, um, to patients for their, you know, plague treatments? <laughs> um, so at least for this situation, I don't think the insurance companies are going to be super affected. Uh, obviously, it's going to be impacted by the amount of people who go to the insurance or the uh, emergency room, but really a lot of the burden is going to be put on the hospitals because hospitals make the assumption that a certain amount of people are going to be covered by insurance. And then they obviously, according to the law, you're not allowed to reject treatment from someone who doesn't have insurance, but you have an assumption that a certain amount of this is going to have to be written off because you're not going to be able to charge someone. So insurance companies kind of have just the assumption that a certain amount of people are going to have to use their coverage for the emergency room visits. And then they have assumptions based on customers. So they're going to see a little bit of pushback there and they're going to take a bit of a hit. Um, and really it's going to be dependent on how the next couple of weeks shape up, but a lot of the burden. And that's why you hear a lot about hospitals needing bailouts right now is that these assumptions that the hospitals came for how much they're going to be able to bill insurance are going to be way lower than their actual cost. So they're going to be basically eating a whole lot of this stuff. And even just in general, you assume that a certain amount is going to be covered and emergency room visits aren't necessarily covered as much. So it's really going to hurt the hospitals. I don't think it's going to hurt the uh, insurance companies too bad. And to be completely honest, a lot of who, not a lot, and it's spread out between a lot of different age groups, but it's affecting predominantly the elderly population. That's where a lot of the truly critical patients are, and they're covered by Medicare. So that's governmental insurance. Okay. So hopefully, 
not hopefully, but the insurance industry shouldn't see just yet too much issue. It should, it's going to be the hospitals that are going to take on a lot of, of that cost. And that's going to hurt them a lot. They're going to need to be able to cover their payroll for a lot of overtime as well. They're kind of getting hit by both sides. That makes sense. Um, so like, does, uh, does your company make uh, ventilators at all or do you no. know? Okay. Um, do you know much about the manufacture of ventilators or is it, is that outside your area? I know kind of the medical device manufacturing and it is a little interesting. I've dealt a lot. I've done some roles before where we've talked about or talked with the FDA and kind of some of their various guidelines. You hear about a lot about relaxing certain FDA approval measures. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of shows you the, the massive barriers to entry when you have to sit there and relax rules for people to start making these. And for ventilators as well, these aren't things that necessarily have to be made in a truly 100% sterile environment. It has to be clean. It has to be sterile. They have to work right. But they're not like a drug where that's going into the bloodstream and needs to be made in basically full alien suits. And <laughs> for example, we we shine lasers through everything and there's a human hair floating in one of the bags. You throw out the entire thing and you examine every single one. You send them away and examine every single one of them and make sure that it was a one-off. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a little different pumping oxygen versus injecting things. If it's going to the bloodstream, any sort of impurity can kill you. Yeah. It's really encouraging that they're having people retool and repurchase or it, to make ventilators. But that whole thing with GM, I mean, having dealing and dealt with capital so much, it is very expensive to change your machine, your capabilities and machining. You have to get people to, specifically tune these machines and then you have to get someone from the fda in to say okay this will not kill someone right so they are they are very careful and this is something temporary i am very much in the opinion that this should be a temporary temporary relaxation and should be permanent relaxation the regulations of the pharma and medical device industry exist for a very very reason. yeah yeah but it's, um, it, we aren't really specifically tooled for it, that sort of thing. Have you seen the uh, like the open source uh, like COVID device, like treatment devices? People like the people that are trying to make like three D printed ventilators. That's an excellent idea, especially in an emergency. Oh, you think it's Basically. a good idea? Okay, I thought it was a. I thought you were going to say it's silly. <laughs> in an emergency, I think it's an excellent idea. Okay. Um, I think in normal times, people just going in 3D printing, a lot of their products is a slippery slope to some preventable deaths. Uh -huh. Which okay. again, on the other side, yeah, with things costing the way they do, there's a lot of preventable deaths for people not getting care. So it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's one of those things where I don't necessarily want to use China as an example, but when I mentioned that we don't really sell much in China is because they have a lot of companies that pop up that do less regulated, much cheaper substitutes. We're almost a premium product in China because we go through these stringent FDA inspections. So a lot of the more wealthy people say, okay, we can guarantee this is safe or lower people can get lower cost options, but you live with a little bit of the risk of there being impurities and certain things wrong with it or cheaply manufactured. I'm not specifically picking on any 
Chinese company there, but that's just kind of an example of where you inherit some risk. People do value how strict our system is for that. But in the case of a ventilator where you're not, nothing's going to the bloodstream, it's to help airflow and help you breathe, I think it's a great Gotcha. Okay. Uh, do you know, uh, like, I guess there's there's other stuff that uh, is lacking in supply right now uh, as well, The like the masks and um, I think gloves are in pretty short supply as well. Do you, do you know much about that? Did you say blood thinner? No, no, sorry. Masks and uh, gloves. Oh, gloves. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, basically, kind of what I understand is this is something we've t- taken for granted for a long time. We didn't think we'd have to have exorbitant amounts for, for a long time. Um, the pl- On the plus side, it's something that's pretty easy to make and crank out, and other companies can adapt their machining to do so obviously you need to have companies that are a little more tailored to that you're not going to take like a a caterpillar who makes giant machines and also have them making masks it's probably just not yeah i saw someone something recently that was like a guy who owns a like regular textile business is is retooling for making masks Mm -hmm. yeah and that's the whole thing is you while you do want to get as many as possible, there's some companies where it's just really not worth it. You're going to be wasting more time trying to get them on board than just find someone else and like someone with a textile business, just have them start making them. Uh, w- would that be also uh, subject to a lot of FDA regulations or is it different? No, not really. It's like, the, okay. Cause it's personal. These things that are domestically sold like, or, um, sold over the counter and just in pretty much every single department store. Uh, they're not they're regulated to a point where when they're packaged, they're clean. They don't, they're not just ridden with virus, but if they're not sitting there yeah. and going through like immense multiple day sterilization things, because it's just not necessary. So they're a lot easier to make it, but you also need a lot more of them than anything else. So, and really, again, as I said before, it's just, there's no incentive for these hospitals to be hoarding all these things because you'd have to have a big warehouse of things expiring and going bad. This is where right. the reason yeah. you talk about the cur- flattening the curve being so important is more so just to be able to maintain that supply because in normal times, again, it's just, it's not, it doesn't make any sense to have this massive amount of inventory when you're just going to have to throw a lot of it out. Um, there's obviously having safety stock of anything is important, but not to this extent. No one really assumed that there would be a full country shutdown, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've seen I've seen articles for like years that are like, you know, everything in our system is uh, just begging for a giant global pandemic that just blows through everything. And, uh, you know me and everyone else that read it was like, ah, that'll never happen. And now that it's actually happened, it's like, whoa, how did that happen? God damn. <laughs> yeah. I do. Th- I do think um, this unless, and we have famously short memories, so uh-huh. I'm not going to get my hopes up too much, but I do think that this is going to influence a lot of thinking around lean manufacturing and just in time purchasing. Right. Yeah. Um, of just doing uh, the bare minimum. Do you want to explain, to you want to explain what that is real quick? Cause I don't think everyone uh, knows. Uh, lean manufacturing is just kind of, at least at a top level, is just kind of cutting costs wherever you possibly can, making sure you're the most efficient operation possible. So I actually, in my internship, I worked at a heavy agricultural machining plant, and I legitimately was taking 
I, I would look over lean projects and some of them were as simple as I moved my tool bench over here. So I would take 20 less steps each time I had to go back and forth and you sit there <laughs> and you calculate how much time that took and be like, all right, you get paid 25 bucks an hour, times 20 minutes a day. Like over the year, it's going to save like, I don't know, 10 grand. I'm just spitballing. And you would call that a lean manufacturing process. It's all about making things as efficient as possible. Where that really kind of starts to hurt you is when you start, you start, running bare bones inventory, like such as these supplies and um, not really tool to manufacture massive amounts of these things in a very short amount of time, which not, not to sit here and defend everyone, but if you were running a company, you wouldn't really want to be manufacturing 24 seven and then shutting down. You wouldn't be able to retain a workforce. You want to keep things going at least at a semi-consistent rate to be able to pay like that. It's kind of eliminating. Yeah, I mean, the it, it makes sense if you're. It makes sense if you're running the numbers, uh, but I guess mm-hmm. if you're not governed entirely by the numbers, then you might think oh, it doesn't make America, a lot of sense. We're, go- we're governed a hundred percent entirely by the numbers, <laughs> right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of companies here that are operating on bare bones and cutting, 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 and then now we're coming back and saying everyone's coming back and saying, "Oh, crap, we're screwed." <laughs> so and then. Um, just in time, I think I mentioned just in time as well. That's essentially purchasing just as enough as you need to get through like the week and then con- uh-huh. having uh-huh. a constant inventory flow. So when the supply chain gets affected like it is now, people are in trouble. And that's why you talk about and good on the grocery. So that's why we had empty shelves for a while. Yeah, good on the grocery companies. I think they're doing a pretty good job right now. And the people who work for them are heroes and a couple times I've gone in, people have been seen near tears. So um, they are <laughs> they are not getting paid enough. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. My girlfriend went in today, and uh, she said that they had uh, got everything pretty well stocked. Actually, I think now that they've gotten past the original panic buy pretty well, um, there's yeah. just certain things like toilet paper that is going to continue to be hoarded, which kind of, kind of a necessity, <laughs> but it's not like you need it to stay alive so right good. jump it, in the shower and wash your ass <laughs> yeah you know everyone loves doing that um <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay uh so i asked for uh questions from uh friends of the show and most of them i think thought you were like a pharmacist so i don't think we're gonna go through uh. most of them <laughs> um <laughs> the one that uh, that we left up here is uh, why are they allowed to garnish your wages for healthcare bills? Okay. Uh, because, <laughs> some, because at some point someone passed the law saying they're allowed to do that. Gotcha. It, okay. I mean, it kind of fall, it kind of falls into the same category as child support, right? Not that it's the same thing, but it's kind of out of the same jurisdiction of this is something that they can garnish your wages for and can come after you. Um, I would just say that the people chasing after you for these things are have powerful lobbies. Uh, so are there are there uh, secondary markets for uh, medical debt, like unpaid health care bills and stuff? Uh, just debt collectors. Um, I've been chased after this before because I moved like four times in two years. And so I must have forgotten for, to forward my mail or something. Yeah. 
damn, basically someone called me out. It's like, yeah, you know, $150 for this check. I was like, I don't even remember this checkup. But uh, I was just like, all right, well, can I just pay it now? They're like, yeah, I want to pay your credit. I was like, yeah, okay. I was like, wait, this isn't the hospital. It's like, no, we're a debt collection agency. It's just like, oh, okay. So the hospital is essentially, when I talked about a certain assumption of billing getting written off, basically what they, a lot of times, in order to make just like a little bit of their principal back, they'll sit there and sell these debts for pennies at a cost. And then these people kind of a little scummy, no offense to anyone in the debt collection agency, actually kind of offense. <laughs> Um, we'll sit there and go after <laughs> people a lot more aggressively and try and garnish certain things to get this money paid. And I think there was actually, uh, like him or hate him, a John Oliver segment on that where he bought up a bunch of medical debt and paid it off. Oh, yeah, I think I saw that. Yeah. Because they essentially they just sell it off because with the hospital, they're like, we need money any way we can. A lot of nonprofits are trying to say this. Loans will be like, all right, well, I'll sell you this debt for ten dollars on a thousand dollar debt and the people go like all right well i paid that's a hell of a return i may as well go after it and if you get you hit on like one out of 50 you're still making a hefty profit it's there to answer the question yeah there's a secondary market for it and a lot of it's debt collection uh so is there like since there is a secondary market are there other things that are present for other forms of debt like subprime lending not that I know of. Um, I think this is one of those things that has a has real bad optics. Um, I am certain that there is a good amount of this that traded on. It's just not quite as public as maybe housing or something. Because despite them seeing like they don't care about PR, it's pretty bad PR. But right. <laughs> I don't necessarily know of any funds that take on huge chunks of medical debt because of the risk. A lot of times with unpaid medical debt, you're probably not going to get it paid. People are more likely to declare bankruptcy, but I would be very surprised if there weren't hospital systems selling that um, into secondary risky funds. I just don't know of any off the top of my head. It's not like housing where Um, all right. So, uh, (laughs) my next question is, is it all a house of cards ready to tumble down in a gentle breeze? And by it, I mean the healthcare system. (laughs) I'm trying to think I wrote something here. Uh, depends how much money you have, which seems. So if you have money, then you're fine. And if you don't have money, then you're not basically. I mean, that's how it's been for a while, right? Yes. Yeah. From that perspective, I guess what I mean is like, is there is there a chance that uh, that hospitals will like not be able to um, treat people that can't pay, even if they are like legally compelled to, or like will will hospitals be the like bigger, shutting the down? Maybe the, the bigger risk is the hospitals not being able to pay their employees. Which okay. Would be an absolute when I talked about earlier about the um, certain estimation of risk of people not paying their bills and that's going to skyrocket and the hospital's going to have to pay all this overtime they didn't budget for. Um, really, and again, not to 
beat this in the ground because everyone else is, but flattening the curve is incredibly important for the fact that we just do not have the infrastructure for the amount of people that are going to be going to the emergency room. And it's not even necessarily, I don't think it's really a black mark on any one industry besides maybe the fact that we acted way too late. But for example, my company is that we're just, we're already operating with a lot of these SMIT these very important things at nearly 24-7. Part of a project, we knocked down our downtime for maintenance from eight hours to four hours just to squeeze the lower volume out, which long-term probably isn't the greatest idea, but it's necessary (laughs) right now. And to basically say, people would be like, well, why can't you just make more? It's like, well, it's not that simple, right? You can't really increase 24-7. Right. So, and we're, we, I mean, we just, we kind of go based off of historical ordering. We have capacity for disasters. Like when there was the hurricane, there still was a shortage. Um, one of the main suppliers of the market went out, but because they had a plant in Puerto Rico, but at the same time, it, it's just not, especially if you're a for-profit company, it's just not smart to sit there and carry a bunch of stuff you're going to have to throw out and no one's going to buy until disaster hits it's just it it is what it is it's a disaster so i guess i don't have necessarily too good of an answer on how you can plan for a lot of that besides you need to smooth out the rate of infection so like uh i guess this is kind of random but like what happens when an iv bag expires like how, how does it expire probably use it still um I would be probably so it's like a expired. it's like a best buy date, not an expiries not an expiration date. Yeah, but the thing is is with the medical industry being as litigious as it is, if somebody dies using our IV bag that happened to be expired, they're gonna try and get you for that. Um right, I would say sense. because you may you make the bags a certain amount of biodegradability because it's a lot of plastic that you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just say with anything plastic, it's like keeping a bottle of water in your car. When you say after a certain oh, yeah. <laughs> you probably shouldn't have it because some of the plastic will just naturally seep in. I don't think that that necessarily happens nearly at that rate because it's a much higher quality plastic. But just with anything that's not just like straight distilled water, you're going to get some sort of degradation, um, especially with something like your lactated ringers or a vitamin solution where you have different minerals in there or electrolytes, they're going to degrade and they're going to not be as effective. So that's kind of how that spires. Um, And they have to refrigerate them too, just to kind of slow that down. That's fit. I mean, to to summarize it simply, I would say it's the same thing as why bottled water expires, but just (laughs) a a lot quicker because it's a lot more pure because it's going into your bloodstream. It's not like something you're drinking, which, we we eat and drink some really truly horrific things. Yeah, I actually uh, <laughs> opened a expired jug gallon jug of distilled water today that uh, I bought like a couple of years ago. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it, it it pretty much is that it gives it the amount of time for impurities impurities to squeeze through. But again, you're probably fine. We're just legally going to say this is not on us. Yeah, I've already uh, you know. Microwave takeout containers 
uh, that, yeah. that are probably seeping plastic chemicals in there. So I think that's a lot worse than the jug of water, but we'll see, I guess. Well, simply, <laughs> simply living is a carcinogen. So, right. <laughs> um, what, what I would kind of want to hit on there though, when I talk about just litigation is that that's a lot of mm-hmm. the reason why I guess they're not necessarily on this topic yet, but that's something I want to hit on as far as overprescription. What sorts of things might be responsible for doctors overprescribing medications and treatments, like such as opiates? My understanding, and this comes from various sources, from working in this industry to friends who are doctors slash PAs to people on the insurance side, we are a very litigious people. In America, um, there's a reason why a lot of rural healthcare systems are so poor. Is a lot of times with malpractice insurance, there's just not a monetary incentive to re- be able to pay that off. You're going to be losing money. Um, so when medicine, a lot of what you're making for medicine is an exact science. Treating someone is not exact. It's a lot of times a best guess and kind of eliminating possibilities in order to get the best treatment possible. So people will die. Um, especially if you're high risk, like you have pre-existing conditions, sometimes it just doesn't work out, um, especially in surgeries. But that's when people go in and say, well, what went wrong? And say, well, we don't know. It's like, all right, well, we're going to sue sue the person for the drugs. We're going to sue the doctor. We're going to sue the hospital. We're going to sue everyone in, ho- in order to try and get something to stick. And mm-hmm. basically what that comes down to is that doctors are afraid that if they don't treat something up front, people are going to sue them and say, well, you didn't diagnose this. So you're supposed to be the doctor. So what they tend to do, and this is big in antibiotics is they overprescribe and say, okay, take this like amoxicillin or something this for a certain amount of time probably won't hurt you. But then what happens is that that helps everything build up drug resistance. And it's really starting to hurt in terms of drug resistant bacteria On the flip side, in terms of pain, a lot of people go in there and, accuse doctors of not helping them when they say you just kind of have to let the pain go away so they'll prescribe certain painkillers to just mask the problem not necessarily solve it and America just from what you see basically everywhere around we're the society of extremes we get drunk we want to get drunker um, we, want to numb, we want to numb even more um, Compared to you, it's like a lot of European social drink. We love getting hammered. That's kind of the best comparison I can use. We want, we want, when we have something, we want it as much as possible. That's Uh, so with the with the opiate thing is, I'm I'm guessing that you can't sue a doctor for not treating your pain, but that maybe like you you could get sued for just some bullshit, and you want to avoid that. Is that kind of what you're getting at? And, uh, um, I mean, a lot of times too, right, is that people have lingering pain that is that can go away or if it's something like arthritis. I know there's arthritis treatments or it's kind of mm-hmm. there's a lot there's a lot of continuing pain that just necessarily can't be treated very well. And a lot of times mm-hmm. it's rather than waste the doctor's time and resources, they over prescribe to kind of say, okay. It's like, I, get need, out I, of need, uh, I need to treat other things. And, gotcha. I mean, okay. part, part of that's a little bit of the indictment on our overstretched healthcare system. 
And that's kind of, and I know they've definitely been dialing it back um, recently, just based on opioids. And then also for benzos with uh, people's health, people are getting hooked on like Xanax and everything, because that's an easy way of being like, I have anxiety rather than going to therapy or going and finding a more long-term solution. They're prescribing the fast acting up front and people are getting addicted to it. So it's very much an instance gratification type of culture. And uh, I don't have time for this. We need to move on and I need to try and help you this way. Um, on the flip side, there's also, and this has kind of been brought into the light a little bit. Um, a lot of companies, sales reps are incentivized based on volume. So um, one of my friends who works in a doctor's office will sit, will text me and say, okay, Pfizer brought our lunch today. And I was like, oh, what are they making you do? And he's like, oh yeah, we're going to try and prescribe like a Viagra or something. They have those commercials, ask your doctor about this. And be like, well, if you're asking him about that, that if he hadn't prescribed it already, it probably means you don't need it. That's right. legal. Right? That's, that's illegal basically in every other country but ours. But part of that is that these drug reps will it's a policy of no kickbacks, and a lot of the drug, comp drug companies have gotten a lot of punishment for these kickbacks of doctor prescribing a certain amount. They pay them, but right now they give the doctors like lunches, trips to conferences, such vacations. It's just basically non-monetary incentives to prescribe a certain drug. And because of that, doctors are over-prescribing because so they're trying to get these benefits there. And then on the and then these drug people are pushing those types of volumes in order to meet their quota so they can earn more money. Just trying to, trying to make a better living and it's kind of a slippery slope. It kind of hits on all different levels of it. And that's really kind of what happened with uh, opioids, right? It's just kind of pushing it, not talking necessarily about the side effects and just saying, prescribe this as much. It's a miracle drug. In reality, it was right. pretty And that's to say, like, opioids, opioids have a very important use in medicine. They are great drugs for treating a lot of things. It's just that we... I'll say... <laughs> Like I, I, I had knee surgery earlier this year and they gave me some, I forget what it even was, but it was just, I was like, I have to take these. So like, if you're really in pain, yeah. Otherwise just take Advil. I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to bother because where I live is just very high in opioid cases. Like I walk past it every day. So yeah, it's not worth it. Yeah. Uh, one, one thing I did find, uh, one of the few bits of research that I did for this episode. Uh, normally I do a lot more, but for this one, uh, not as much, but uh, I, I did find that the NHS has been accused of fueling an opioid crisis in the UK, uh, which like in the U S disproportionately affects poor and racialized communities. And um, Canada has a serious problem with it as well. Um, in 2017, they had nearly 4,000 opioid overdose deaths. So there's, Got to be something in common with all three systems that that can be contributing to this. So it, I guess it's not completely just the evil for-profit healthcare system that we have. But, um, I mean, like we already went over, even if you have a public healthcare system, um, you know, there's still privatized aspects. So maybe, maybe the, some of the stuff you're talking about still is happening there. 
And what I would kind of venture a guess too, because you see, obviously, the opioid outbreak is everywhere, but really where it's hit hard is where a lot of economic strife has happened. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you can attribute boredom, um, people who are just not necessarily in good health, don't have a whole lot going on, and um, corruption. One, like, what was it? Uh, just the massive amount of prescriptions going through West Virginia. There's not much going on there. The coal mines were shutting down. People had nothing better to do except sit there and take it. And you get people who have enough monetary incentive to falsely prescribe it. It's hard to really keep track, but. Yeah, that is one of the biggest components of addiction is, you know, deprivation, essentially. People don't really get addicted to stuff unless they are deprived in some way, usually, of, you know, basic needs or um, social interaction or things like that. Um, People are still getting surgeries and everything in these healthcare mm -hmm. systems, like maybe a knee surgery or some ongoing pain. They're getting prescribed this because they really do need it. And if you have an addiction trigger in your brain, a lot of times, a lot of times they're going to say, oh, well, my pain's still going when in reality it's not. And they're going to say, okay, we'll keep prescribing it, not assuming an addiction. And then that's kind of where you uh, hit the slippery slope into heroin, which I know, I think in the UK, heroin's pretty bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Especially in Scotland, I think. Yeah. So it's, well, people sell it too, just like any other. Let's circle back a little bit. Uh, I had a, a question that I thought would be pretty interesting to talk about. What would it start to, or sorry, what would it take to start a business or co-op that manufactures insulin or antivirals or something like that? Like what are the major obstacles to it? Oh, I talked earlier about FDA compliance and at least for me, the importance of it. So Mm -hmm. the thing is with insulin, I talked about the importance of some injecting something being clean. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why insulin is so expensive right now is because not that many people make it. And the people who do make it, obviously insulin is generic. The way people create barriers to entry is they create either specific reformulation or you would call it a presentation, which is a proprietary method of delivering the drug. So for example, um, like an EpiPen is a proprietary delivery method. A lot of comp- a lot of different companies make epinephrine, but EpiPen is a trademarked name for the injection into someone's arm or leg or it's whatever. It's like the device, right? Yes, it's the medical device that goes along with the drug. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's part of how they create these barriers to entry. So you're going to go back, and it would be great if someone were to just start making insulin. It would have, especially insulin, would have to be manufactured in a sterile injectable setting, which is, if I had to make an estimate, probably at least $100 million up front in terms of just hiring compliance and oversight and all the necessarily sterilization. It's that's all. Why didn't you say so? I got that on me right now. (laughs) Yeah. So, and the thing is, and while it is pretty lucrative now, you're going to come in and say, all right, well, I'm just selling this vial and then everyone else has already negotiated supply. You're going to have to try and cannibalize, which with these companies is going to be very difficult. 
there's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. Obviously, the lower cost is going to entice some people, but then these companies don't just make insulin. They make a lot of other things, and they're going to say, well, if you want this, you're going to have to keep buying this. And they could probably just like, I mean, if if you're starting up a new insulin manufacturing operation, then you have a bunch of uh, like sunk costs to to make your money back on, right? Whereas these other companies, they've already done that. And so they can probably just undercut you until you go out of business. And in my, in my, some of my prior companies, um, I worked in sterile injectables. These were all generics. Um, mm. Basically, it's a battle between a bunch of different companies to become the cost leader. So the goal, obviously, is to sit there and make something still at a profit, but to sink your price as low as possible so people go with you for an extended period of time. You have drugs where people more and more just keep exiting the market until finally you're maybe one of two or just the only one. And then what happens is you lock up all these suppliers and then you start, every time a contract comes up, you start increasing the price again. So it's almost cyclical because as a product becomes more profitable, people are going to start making it again. But it takes them several months to get the process validated in a plan. Uh, people have to come in and make sure that everything's going and up and running. And if you let something fire, you're going to have to revalidate it. So even though it's generic, you'll have a certain amount of time of exclusivity. And that's when you really make hand over fist. So it, but then that whole cycle starts again. And you sit there and you try and cost leader yourself into knocking everyone else out of the market. And like, a lot of times smaller companies will sit there and just not have the ability to spread out their costs across other operations and they'll kind of drop out for a little okay. plucky incomer to do that just because they have a lot of fixed costs that they can't spread out. And a pharmaceutical giant can sit there and just basically like taking a knife with peanut butter to spread it across a whole bunch of different things. Gotcha. Okay. To, just um, because something's generic doesn't mean it's not being predatorily priced. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I guess, I mean, it looks like you have an answer for this. So even though it's completely outside of your area, we can just talk about it real quick. Uh, why do prescriptions have a bunch of different possible prices? Have you ever watched the lottery with the ping pong balls? Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just joking. Um, so a lot of it is, so you go to your pharmacy, like a Walgreens or something, and you see a lot of these drugs are generics, and so you get prescribed something, and probably a few different companies make it. Um, Walgreens has basically the insurance companies have what you call pharmacy benefit management, which is just the prescription part of any sort of employer plan, which like your express scripts or various things like that. And so these are all negotiated supplies with certain drugs and depending on your insurance, the negotiated supplier. So like a Teva is one I think Milan's another, I, I used to know these a lot better, not anymore, but basically all these different, Pharmacy benefit management are negotiated with certain suppliers through distributors. And again, like you're factoring in multiple different things. Again, with the type of insurance, the 
negotiated supply and for example, let's say I need like 100 milligrams of something, doctor prescribes like 150. A lot of times, if it's not something you can break off or segment yourself, they're going to have to make a lower volume special amount for that. And that tends to be a higher price. So it's there are a lot of different factors in it. And really, I guess to summarize it, it amounts to it just being a complex and bad system. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I, I've had prescriptions, like I've had my insurance company push back and just say, you know, you know, there's a generic drug that does almost the same thing. It's like, well, it's not the same thing. This is a different formula. Be like, well, it's too expensive. We're not going to cover it. So either you can pay $300 for a 30 day supply, or you could go with this other one. Well, all right then. (laughs) So But it is because they didn't really have anything negotiated as a still on patent drug. And you're like, well, we don't think you need this. Okay, whatever you guys say. <laughs> but that, and that, I mean, that kind of branches you into that whole um, rare disease drugs and um, more importantly, biologic drugs that are a lot harder to make and a lot more specific. That That's a lot of insurance companies just flat out say we're not going to cover this it's a last resort uh so i guess the last thing that i have uh that we can talk about well uh you wrote it actually Uh, you have a section here that says funny war stories do you want to talk about some of those good i was hoping you hit on that um (laughs) let's see here uh so just as like a disclaimer, um, just because these companies seem very important and do some pretty advanced things and have some very it means everyone's really products. serious all the time and, and they all wear glasses and suits and stuff, right? Uh, some of the bigger ones, it actually seemed like that, but for the most part, they're <laughs> all just ridiculously dysfunctional and no one actually knows what's going on at any point. In time. Um, a lot of them are just kept afloat through Excel spreadsheets. Um, at one point I had, this is what, after a, um, we, we got divested and, uh, carved out. I was part of a carve out team in the divesture, which was good. Cause I hated the company that bought us. Um, <laughs> but I, I had the entire company's financial statements just sitting on my desktop computer. And then I emailed it to a couple of my boss and be like, I'm just going to give this to you because if I die in a car accident, we le- legitimately cannot report. like we it's gone (laughs) yeah that that exists um i would say so i did a little time in external reporting which is like companies file their 10k to the sec um very important thing for auditing purposes make sure you're not committing fraud but um our old cfo had a pretty notorious temper he wasn't really widely liked but he's good at what he did so the board liked him um, but we had just notoriously crappy printers by the finance area. And it was late night. Was, this was right out of college for me. It was about 10 o'clock and we were trying to get a print off to get to our auditing firm. And our CFO was very impatient, wanted to go home. And one of the crappy printers he refused to replace just started kicking out, smearing everything, like just not actually working. He basically took an NFL kicker run-up kick into the printer. <laughs> 
uh, to which we kind of just reprinted it out at a different printer that was working. And uh, the next day, that printer was gone. So, um, and he he talked about it. He gave us a nice big talk about being professional only a couple of weeks before. Um, <laughs> the medical device excise tax. So that was something that came with the Affordable Care Act. Um, I'm not here to really debate the merits of it on or off, but basically what I did, it's based on what you're exporting from a foreign operation into the United States. So you get taxed on it as one and a half percent. So for some of our plants in Central America, I just essentially had to see what inventory was coming into the country and then kind of figure out if it was going to stay and be sold, which gets a little more difficult when you have a distribution network. I spent about a week working with various people and finally figuring out how much we actually had so that I could sit there and say, all right, we're going to spend so-and-so amount of millions on this tax that we're going to have to pay. And I worked the full week working late and then sent it to my director. All is well and good. Literally that afternoon, it got announced that that tax was suspended indefinitely. So my director walks over and says, good work, but you need to zero all this out every week. Um, I, I drank a lot that night. I drank a lot. Um, see who else have, uh, the Brazil wine incident. So Brazil at that yeah, time, perfect segue had, for that. <laughs> Brazil had a one-to-one import export rule where if you didn't have an office established, uh, you had to import as much as you export. And you have basically a lot of comp- what companies will do is they'll buy stuff from Brazil and then sell their credits to other people. So that basically there's a certain amount made domestically. Um, we had some crucial drugs we need to get in. And Sorry, what do you mean by credits? So like, let's say um, I'm buying a bunch of stuff from Brazil, but I'm not selling anything. Um, I have a certain amount of credit to import or export to Brazil. Like I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm importing stuff from Brazil, but I'm not exporting to Brazil. So I have these credits that I'm going to sell to another company at a premium so that they can sell stuff to them without having to buy stuff. Okay. It's kind of the same concept with like um, emissions credits too, where companies get a certain amount and they don't use it. They sell it off to other people who can pollute more. Um, Gotcha. Okay. (laughs) We had to very quickly get drugs into Brazil. They were much needed at a hospital system. And so we had to find something real quick at a certain value to buy. And so we bought a very large order of wine and so this is a pharmaceutical company that just had pallets upon pallets of wine from Brazil that we need to figure out. Someone, some salesperson had to go and figure out to sell it to someone. But I think we just ended up taking a loss and selling it to someone on the cheap. But yeah, we were buying alcohol for a while so we could sell in Brazil. <laughs> um, good one. Uh, my first day working at the, our manufacturing plants, one of the biggest pharma plants in the world. Uh, my first day. My new boss pulls me into the office and says, do you have anything in your car, like alcohol, firearms or anything? I was like, uh, no, I don't think so. He's like, well, go check. This is your one chance to get rid of it because a bunch of fentanyl went missing and the DEA is here with the dogs. They were oh, taking, uh, they were going through the parking lot car by car searching for people. And this, this, this it's like, yeah, if we find something you're not allowed to have on the premise, you're fired. And because I was someone who like craft beer and I, there's a lot of good breweries in North Carolina where I was. And so, like, I would buy, like, bombers when I'd go past the place and then just toss them in my trunk and get it out of my car when I remember. And so I had to go and check to be sure because I would have been fired. But they never found the fentanyl. Um, a couple of people lost their job over that, but, and re- probably rightfully so because that is dangerous stuff. 
there's a story that my mom always tells that's somewhat similar to that. Uh, the first day that she moved to L.A., she was like bringing the uh, she was having the movers like bring her stuff into her apartment and she hears a bunch of commotion and she turns around and there's like a fucking SWAT team blowing in <laughs> someone's door <laughs> to raid them. And she's like, what on earth did I do? What is what kind of decision did I just make? <laughs> like before swatting, too, is probably legit. Yeah, <laughs> this would have been like the probably 70s. <laughs> okay, yeah. They. Jeez. Oh, yeah, that's uh, nothing. Nothing says hello like that. Uh, let's see. Um, I guess another. Uh, I was in charge what of is raw flavored material. raw materials. That yeah, was the one that interested me. I was in charge of raw materials, so standard cost is basically like you do a bunch of analysis, establish how much one thing will cost. So I had about 15,000 different materials that I had to do cost for. And I was kind of just looking through. A lot of them aren't necessarily active. but Something caught my eye. One was caramel flavoring and one was wintergreen flavoring. And this is a plant that manufactures only injectable drugs. So I was like, okay, that's a little weird. (laughs) So my entire time there, I was only there in a six-month temporary stint. I was asking people who had worked there forever, just asking and asking and asking. And my second to last week, I finally ran into someone who was like, had been there for 40 years. And I was like, you wouldn't happen to know this. He's like, because it was established during the AIDS epidemic as a backup emergency site for oral AIDS medication. And so that old financial system green screen where you just typed everything was still in existence. And those products from basically the AIDS epidemic in the 80s were still in the system, and I still had to plan standard costs for them, even though very clearly that wasn't going to be the case anymore. But it, according to compliance, <laughs> I had to still plan for flavoring for oral AIDS medication. <laughs> and I was just like, what is the point of doing this? He's like, well, just just do it. So I was <laughs> like, well, I guess I don't think this company exists anymore that would supply. And I was like, just my boss kind of had enough of me at that point. It's <laughs> pretty great. I mean, I guess I alluded to like the merger and acquisition and carp out. I just do a really quick one, but it was a pharmaceutical giant. I'm very glad I don't actually work there. They made it very clear where I worked. They didn't want any part of it. So they sold us pretty quickly to a much better company. But um, all the people who were retained in marketing, um, it was very clear. And they were basically at least twice a week from the steakhouse by where our office was, we're getting catered lunches. So there'd be like steak sandwiches, super nice salads. They would never eat all of it. And so I would have a late breakfast. And then right when they all went to their meetings or back to their desks, we as a finance group would slowly move down and just take, I ate cold steak sandwiches for lunch and slash dinner as we were working late for weeks and weeks and weeks, just leftover disgusting catering that the marketing team left. I'm not proud of it, but you know, it, was, it was my way of uh, taking taking any sort of money from there because they they told our part of the business freeze everything. You're not allowed to go out to lunch or anything because they were trying to sell us. And so we took all the leftover steakhouse stuff, and I have no regrets to this day. I've done a lot worse than that. Trust me. Yeah, I, I mean the free meal was nice. But yeah, after you can only eat so much uh, buttery steak sandwiches before you start. In your stomach. Yeah, even the best leftover food that you steal gets pretty old after a little bit, you know. Yeah, but and I, I worked at a fancy high-end bakery in um, Alexandria, Virginia, 
which it, like you know most of the people that went there were like rich people that lived in like two million dollar townhouses oh, yeah. and uh we had lots and lots of leftovers because the the safety margin for all the expiration dates was pretty high um so i i got really good food like all the time uh but you know it was pretty much the same thing over and over so it did get very repetitive our current coo um every single meeting so i used to do uh travel and entertainment expenses i developed basically the reporting system for it um Every single month cycle, there's at least four or five orders for catered lunch Panera Bread. They only ever get Panera. He loves Panera, will not order anything else. So they had a bunch of investment bankers in. I don't really know what to discuss, but they had Panera catered. I was like, you probably shouldn't cater investment bankers Panera. That might come off as like, yeah, that fucking sucks. (laughs) Maybe go a little nicer next time. I'm not advocating for frivolous spending, but. You're trying to get them to give you money. You might want to do that. But yeah, it's, it's like every single month now he's a finance group and be like, all right, three Paneras this month. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, thanks a lot for coming on and explaining all this stuff. I learned a lot. I think our listeners will also uh, learn quite a bit. Did you have like anything else you wanted to get in at the last minute? Oh, no, I don't think so. I love talking about this stuff. And I'm not just a disc. I guess I probably should have done this at the beginning. I'm not trying to come off as like an industry shill. I just, I'm what I try to do is toe the line between having people recognize that a lot of these things that are being made are incredibly necessary and important to our functioning healthcare system. But that being said, the system is completely fucked up, needs to be changed. <laughs> and it's, it's people getting away with literal murder. So. I talk yeah. about this one giant I used to work for, and I, I since worked for a much more ethical firm. It was just part of an integration, and it's just I, I was close to quitting before they sold us because it was just like I had tired of going to work with a stomachache, and it's just some of the pra- some of the practices in the industry, and honestly, the solution to it is um, legislation, because as a public company, right. your entire point is to make as much money as possible that's the core function of capitalism is to Mm -hmm. report to the shareholder and juice the stock price so until they start passing laws to say you can't do this you're gonna keep doing it everything everything is boiled down to a number so it's again there are some truly miraculous treatments out there that are insanely important and we we need to find some way to stri- to strike a balance in the middle between having these companies innovate and make these things, but also not charging five hundred thousand dollars for a hepatitis treatment. Right. Yeah. No. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun to talk. I can always drone on and on about this stupid bullshit. <laughs> I don't know if you have anything to plug. Do you have anything that you want to plug? Um. No, not really. Just stay safe, everyone. Um. Stay inside. <laughs> Wash your hands and everything, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, that's a myth, right? <laughs> All right, Zaylin, thanks the again. The virus is a liberal hoax. <laughs> that's my plug. <laughs> Have a good one. All right, bye.